0: Listening to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Ultra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name's Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. In today's episode, we're going to explore the role of a food service dietitian, including discussions around what a typical day looks like and who they tend to work with on a regular basis. We're gonna dive deeper into hospital menus and unpack how food service dietitians ensure that menus are not only healthy and palatable, but meet the requirements of different patients. We'll also gain a real unique insight into what NHS hospitals typically spend on meals and how cost-effective menus are created. Today, I'm really pleased to be joined by Elise Kelly, a registered specialist food service dietitian with over 10 years of experience across a variety of roles, from clinical dietetics to digital health coaching. Elise is a perfect guest for this interview, as her focus is on improving hospital food service within the NHS. She's developed many menus to cater to patients' medical, religious, and cultural needs, and she recognises that nutrition is a crucial part of patients' recoveries. So I'm going to hand over to Elise, who's going to tell us a bit more about herself.
1: Hello, I'm Elise. Um, Thank you for that, Harriet. Um, So, yeah, I actually moved from Australia to the UK, um, and that's where I found my love for food service. Um, So I've since worked across uh, 10 major London hospitals, um, and I'm also a committee member of the BDA's Food Service Specialist Group, um, and I'm also deputy chair of the BDA's Nutrition and Hydration Digest Review. Uh, and I guess one more point would be that I'm also part of the team behind nutridex.org.uk. Um, so that's an online platform that's standardizing the way nutrition information is published so that food and health professionals can effectively meet people's dietary needs.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much, Elise. It's really, really great to hear hear, um, have you with us today. And we're going to be talking to Elise all about her journey and her current role and explore what attracted her to food service dietetics in the first place and how she's gotten to where she is today. But before we delve into that, we're going to go straight to our quick fire questions, which is a chance for you to get to know Elise on a bit more of a personal level. So Elise, first question is, what is your favorite thing about Australia and why? (laughs) Well, I
1: guess nowadays, uh, my favorite thing about Australia would have to be my family. Um, I've got a really close relationship with my parents and my brother's just had a little girl um, and I haven't seen them all in about three years now. Um, So I'm really looking forward to visiting for Christmas this year. Uh, I guess a close second, though, would have to be the beaches, so the sandy beaches and the clear blue ocean um, and I'm from the west of Australia, so you get stretches of uh, wild coastline where you're the only one on the beach. So.
0: No, I have to say, I did. I was fortunate enough to visit the Great Ocean Road a few years back, and oh, amazing! <laughs> when I got out there, I understood why so many of my friends had finally taken that leap and moved moved across the the world. Um, beautiful place. So that leads me on to my next question: Do you prefer summer or winter, Elise?
1: Oh, if, if I had to pick between winter and summer, it would definitely be summer. Um, but one of my favourite things about living in the UK is that we get a proper winter uh, and I love the change of seasons. Uh, I really enjoy all the festivities at Christmas time.
0: And are you normally in the UK at Christmas or Australia?
1: It varies. So obviously the last couple of years definitely been UK. um, But yeah, this year will be a hot summer Christmas, (laughs) which is very different for a lot of people, but uh, it definitely feels like home for me. So a barbecue turkey then, I'm
0: guessing. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
1: All outside in the pool all the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds lovely. And finally, how do you like to relax when you're not just in the pool? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not so many pulls here. Um, That's a really good
1: question, actually. Uh, I can't actually remember the last time I I did something purely to relax. Um, But there are a few things I would say I do in my daily routine to to help keep me level. Um, So, for example, during the first lockdown, I was working in the NHS um, and I couldn't see my partner or my friends and I was finding it really hard to relax. Uh, So I started meditation for the first time. Uh And now it's something I do religiously every morning just to help set me up and get in the right mindset um, because that's a bit boring, but one of the things I really enjoy um, that I find relaxing is cooking typical for a dietitian, but uh, I get a red regular uh, veggie delivery box like um, with lots of surplus veggies uh, and I love to sit down and come up with a menu and uh, new recipes to try out
0: That sounds really great and um going back to the meditation thing, I don't think that's boring at all. In fact, <laughs> avid user of the Calm app. Yes, and, exactly. Um, I, I just, um, am in awe of anyone that can do it daily. Cause I always feel good when I do meditate, but getting it to become that routine, I think is the biggest challenge. Yeah, definitely.
1: I, I make sure it's like the, I make a cup of tea and it's the first thing I do in the day. Um, so that way nothing else can get in the way. Cause I find if I delay it too long, everything else starts to pile
0: up. So if you get done first, That's my, that's my big tip. I'll take note. I'll take (laughs) note. So Elise, delving into the topics for discussion. And I think first of all, we'd all love to know what attracted you to food service dietetics in the first instance. Yeah, sure. So I've, uh, I always wanted to specialize in an area of dietetics,
1: uh, but it, it took me a while to figure out what that was. And so I remember reading an article years ago by a food service dietitian uh, in Dietetics Today magazine um, about her role in the hospital. Uh, And she talked about all of these things that I really love like developing menus and um, different dish ideas. Um, so when I was working as a clinical dietitian, a lot of my roles involved nutrition support um, and I was always looking for ways to get more calories and protein into patients. Um, But I felt a bit limited by what I could offer patients and frustrated that I was only really managing to see a handful of them a day. Um, Whereas in food service, I love the feeling of affecting the nutritional intake of hundreds of patients. Um, And doing that through the food itself uh, and also how that food is served as well.
0: And in terms of your journey to get to where you are today as a food service dietitian, um, what was your dietetic pathway after graduating? Did you go into clinical dietetics or did you go straight into this area? What, What did that look like?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, as I mentioned, I I've, um, was born in Australia, so I studied at Curtin University about 10 years ago now. Which, um, sounds crazy. Um, and after graduating, I worked in various clinical and health promotion roles as well. Um, in Western Australia, where I'm from, they only have four major hospitals. Uh, so I decided to take the leap and move to London to get more experience in larger hospitals with different specialities. Um, I worked in a few locum roles for the NHS uh, and one of those was actually as a forensic mental health dietitian. So that was really eye-opening and interesting. Um, and then I actually moved to a health tech startup that aimed to tackle type 2 diabetes and weight management with online health coaching. So I did that for a few years, but I felt like I was losing touch with clinical dietetics and I really wanted to get back into the NHS and working with patients again. Um I went back into locuming and I got to try out a lot of different specialities, gastro, hematology. It was all really interesting. Um, uh, But food service was always something that I'd been really interested in. And uh, once I found my feet at one of the particular trusts I was locuming at, so that was at Imperial College in London, um, I started to make inquiries about how I could get more involved in the food service area. So I, I contacted the food service dietitian at that particular trust. Um, I volunteered to be part of food service projects, um, and I'd sit in on the catering meetings as well, which were always quite interesting. Uh, so when an opportunity came up for a short-term catering dietitian contract um, within that trust, I was already in a good position to put my name forward, um, and I was successful with that contract, which was which was great, and. I loved every minute of it, so I knew it was the area I wanted to keep going with um, and specialize in. So my first permanent role was with um, was at the Barts Health Trust in London, and that was with a, a company called Serco. Um, and then I've since moved to a company called ISS. Um, so we're contracted by the NHS to provide catering services, um, and that's I started out as their dietitian at the Lewisham Greenwich Trust. And recently I've since moved into their central dietetics team for ISS. Um, so that's part of their operational performance food team.
0: Oh, congratulations on that Thank recent you. move. <laughs> um, you've interchangeably used the term food service and catering dietitian. Is there a difference between the two or are they the same thing? That is a
1: really good question. Um, and I it, what a comes down to I suppose is a food service dietitian and a catering dietitian do essentially mean the same thing, um, but catering dietitian is the older terminology, and we're trying to move towards food service dietitian. So you'll see a lot of jobs still advertised for catering dietitians, um, but we're trying to yeah get the the term food service dietitian used um, instead, and that's mostly because food service encompasses more than just. Uh, the food on the plate. So it's the service element as well. So from the people uh, interacting with patients to the systems in place to get the food up to the ward. Um, And when you work in this field, you realize that the food you recommend on the menus uh, and um, what you put in place in terms of uh, dish options, that's only half the equation. The other half is all about how that food is served. Um, And food service, I guess, is just more inclusive of the areas That dietitians can work in. So it's not just your traditional public catering, um, but anywhere that foods produced, served or sold like the retail industry and food manufacturing as well.
0: And in terms of your specific role, um, are you based in the hospital day to day or do you travel to different locations? What does that look like for you?
1: Yeah. So um, when I was Um, based with one contract so working with one particular uh, hospital trust I would be based in those hospital sites Um, so per trust obviously you might have more than one hospital so I'd split my time between the hospitals Uh, but now that I've moved into the central team um, I might occasionally go out to a hospital site that needs support um, but it's much more um, office-based or home-based because especially now with our digital way of working.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Hybrid working. Um, And in terms of a typical day, I appreciate it's probably not a typical day for you, just like most of us, but what are the main sorts of roles and duties that you tend to get involved with? Um, I guess I would sum up the the main role of the food service dietitian,
1: uh, at least in a hospital setting, um, is ensuring that my as many patients as possible have access to safe and appropriate foods and drinks that meet their nutrition and hydration needs during their hospital admission. Um, There's lots of moving parts that we need to manage to be able to achieve this. So the main thing associated with a food service dietitian is menu development. So we make sure the menus can meet the different nutrition needs uh, and dietary requirements of patients. Uh, This involves like, planning, analyzing the menu, dietary coding, um, all to ensure that we, uh, can not only meet the needs of the patient, but they are also compliant with, uh, national guidelines in hospital food. So that plays a big part as well. Um, and part of this menu development is working closely with suppliers. So we, um, As the food service dietitians, we review their bids uh, and any potential products that we might want to use. Um, We make sure that they're going to meet the the needs of the patients. Um, And we also really closely um, liaise with the suppliers uh, if there's any stock or supply issues, which we're seeing a lot more of at the moment. Uh, So when things go out of stock, we need to make sure we can get an alternative in that's going to be suitable for the patients um, and also work for us operationally as well. Um, I guess another big part of our role is being that link between clinical teams and uh, the catering team. So uh, this involves a lot of uh, developing and delivering training for our um, catering teams. So what we call a ward host or a nutrition assistant, they don't tend to come from a medical or nutrition background. So it's up to us to make sure they get the right training so that they can confidently cater to the patient's different dietary needs. Um, they have a massive amount of responsibility um, without a common qualification in place. Um, So that's a really important part of our role. Um, I guess another big part would be auditing. (laughs) Uh, So we frequently do uh, weekly meal audits, um, food waste audits, uh, but also larger annual audits. So things like place and CQC um, to make sure that the hospitals are compliant for hospital food. Uh, And food safety is another big part of the role as well. So making sure we're compliant with food safety guidelines, HACCP, um, and we get specialist training in this area as well. Um, But we're still learning a lot in the sphere of hospital foods and constantly working to to make it better, essentially. So another big part of being a hospital food service dietitian is uh, driving forward quality improvement projects.
0: And on that note, are there any particular projects that you're currently involved with that you can tell us a bit more about? Uh, yeah,
1: um, the one I'm probably most excited about is actually outside of my day-to-day role. Um, I've actually been working with a software engineer on a website called Nutridex.org.uk. Um, and Nutridex provides accurate nutrition information so that food and health professionals can effectively meet people's dietary needs. Um, as dietitians, we can't really do our jobs properly uh, if we don't have accurate data. Um, Nutridex takes a a standard approach to publishing nutrition information to ensure that all the data is firstly accessible. So as in it's it's freely available and uh, easy to browse on any device, that it's accurate. So it comes direct from the source. So you're not worried about it, Um, you know, you you wanna make sure that that data is up to date as well. And we want to encourage that single source of truth of nutrition information. Um, So it's essentially an online platform that helps users publish and consume nutrition information. Uh, Dietitians can be guaranteed that the data is accurate. So we currently have McCants and Widdessens data. um, And we've also started adding common nutritional supplement drinks and feeds to the platform as well. Um, We're in conversations with hospital food suppliers um, to get their nutrition information directly on the platform, and we have a a recipe builder in the pipeline as well. So I I find NutriDex really helpful when I quickly need to look up the nutrition of a food. Uh, For example, if I want to check, say, if a custard has a suitable amount of potassium to add to a dessert on a renal menu, I can do this on NutriDex and edit the serving size to get the exact value that I need. Um, And I know after speaking to students, they also find it useful as they need to constantly analyze foods for assignments and research projects um, and have in the past turned to some well-known websites where you don't always know the source um, of the nutrition information. It's not really widely known, but uh, uh, roughly 75% of countries have their own uh, food composition data sets. Uh, So these unique data sets reflect reflect the differences in local food varieties, production and fortification policies. So it's important that you use your country's official food composition data um, or get that uh, nutrition information directly from the supplier that you're using.
0: Well, that's really exciting. And I know we've linked to um, the Nutridex in the show notes. So if anyone who's listening would like to check that out in more detail, please do go and look at the show notes and check out the website. Um, But it sounds like you're really making a lot of dietitians' lives easier and more streamlined and it certainly takes me back to my student days when you used to write out by hand a ready reckoner of all the yeah. common <laughs> foods that you'd be prescribing to patients and recommending and to have that you know digitally digitally in one place sounds like um, a dream come true. So I'll certainly be having a look at that myself. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. We've all, we've all had our experiences with uh, the McCann's and we spreadsheet. <laughs> Very clunky. Yes. Yes. Um, in terms of your sort of multidisciplinary team involvement, I'm wondering who you tend to work with on a day-to-day basis. Is it other dietitians, other clinicians, do you chat to patients? What does that look like?
1: Yeah. Um, it, it is definitely, um, a multidisciplinary team um, approach. Um, So I guess when you work as a clinical dietitian, you do have those other health professionals that you're working with day-to-day. But for a food service professional, um, you've got got that side of things in terms of working with um, other dietitians, speech and language therapists, nurses, um, but you've also got the catering side of things. So on a day-to-day basis, I'd work really closely with the catering managers of hospitals, um, also the general managers of hospitals, um, because if you're wanting to get you know any projects put in place or make any changes, um, you've got to go to that like upper level ma- level management of NHS trusts. So you've got fas- um, estates and facilities teams that you'd have to run things by and involve them in the processes as well. Um, so you get to see um, a lot more of the business side of things when it comes to um, food and the systems that you're putting in place. Uh, so it's really interesting working with those teams a lot more closely. Um, but yeah, on a day to day basis, it's mostly your trust dietetics teams, your catering managers, and also your frontline catering staff. So your nutrition assistants or ward hosts who are actually doing the uh, you know menu taking and delivering that food to the
0: patients. Most important question is who gets to do all the menu tasting? Is that something you get involved with? <laughs>
1: A hundred percent. And that may or may not be my favorite part of the job. <laughs> so yeah, we, we would run as part of a, a menu review, we would run a tasting session to try all the new dishes that we were looking to put on the menu. Um, and we would invite key stakeholders to those tasting sessions. So your dieticians, speech and language nurses, um, people involved in catering, uh, but, and, and we would tend to run those sessions, um, maybe alongside our suppliers, Um, but yeah, we, we, a hundred percent, um, taste all the food.
0: (laughs) Now you mentioned it may or may not be your favorite part of the role. And let's be honest, hospital food still doesn't have the best rep perhaps amongst the general public. Um, I'm wondering like why you think that is and what more we could do to potentially try and change that. Yeah.
1: um, I mean, it's definitely a common theme for any mass catered meals to have a bad reputation. Uh, I think most of us have had a soggy airline meal or a sad looking sandwich on the train. Um, And hospital foods do come with their own challenges. So foods are generally lower cost. Um, Meals are either cooked in bulk or regenerated from chilled or frozen. um, And the people responsible for the cooking and plating of the food, they're under a lot of pressure and they may not have received the right level of training or support. At the end of the day though, you you can make hospital food appealing. Um, I've even served uh, frozen patient meals to royalty. Um, It's all about how you prepare it and how you plate it. So, um, plus when you're catering to the masses, you're never going to please absolutely everyone. Um, everyone has their own personal preferences for brands and how food is cooked so you're never going to get that 100% right Um, but we can work towards it Uh, we're constantly getting patient feedback through bedside surveys uh, and it's really nice to see for every complaint there's at least two compliments so I think we're starting to see a change in how people think about hospital food
0: yeah, that's really encouraging to hear. And I feel like I have to probe you a bit more on the comment you made about serving frozen hospital food to royalty. Can you <laughs> expand on that in any way or shape or form? Um, just, just that. Uh, yes,
1: it was, um, you know, we did have a, a raw member of staff who got admitted to one of the hospitals I've worked in previously. Um, and it was quite last minute. And, you know, it was that big conversation like, oh, like surely they'll come with their own private chef or, you know, they'll have that cut, kind of, but it, there wasn't, it wasn't a lot of fanfare. Um, and then you kind of feel that pressure to, um, you know, you really have to perform. But I remember sitting down with my manager and they're like, "Do we get like a private chef in? And I just thought, you know, there is nothing wrong with hospital foods. It, it's, it's, i would be happy to serve it to them it is just making sure that it's um you know you prepare it in the right way um there's a bit of tlc involved and it's plated nicely and um i, I had no issue serving it to them whatsoever and they really really uh, enjoyed the soup
0: <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna ask you what it was well that is wonderful to know. I think that is definitely going to give a lot of people a few chuckles. Um, so, just going back to your role, then, are you involved in the main hospital menus, or are we talking much more about the, the specialized special diet menus here?
1: Yeah, no, that that's um, a really good question. So, I guess my my role I'm, is I'm involved in any um, any menu that goes to the patients. So. That would be obviously our standard um, standard hospital menus, but also our special diet menus. Um, so the main hospital menus they do have to meet uh, the BDA digest standards, and they have to be coded correctly um, with standard menu codes, um, which are higher energy, healthier eating, vegetarian, easy to chew. Uh, And then the special diets, they they need to fit in with these same standards, Um, but it's within the limitations of that particular special dietary requirement. So in most hospitals, you'll have menus for texture modified, um, gluten-free, allergen-free, vegan, low potassium, and also some cultural and religious diets like halal and kosher.
0: Yes. Can you tell us in a bit more detail, how do you go about developing a menu and also making sure that they're healthy and palatable for patients who do have quite unique requirements? Yeah, so when it
1: comes to uh, reviewing a hospital menu or developing one for the first time, um, I've got four main aims um, that I concentrate on. So the first is I want to provide as many patients as possible with the opportunity to meet their nutritional needs. Um, I want to make sure um, that it's enticing and tasty so that patients actually want to eat it. Um, I want to stick within the budget and increasingly I want to make it more sustainable. So they're the kind of four key factors. Uh, so if we're looking at each of those, um, those four aims essentially. So the first being to provide as many patients as possible with the opportunity to meet their nutritional needs, we need to We need to consider how we can cater to special dietary requirements. So whether that's vegan or texture modified, we need to make sure that there's a mix of both higher energy, higher protein options, and also healthier options so that we can cater to both patients who are nutritionally well, and also those who are nutritionally vulnerable. Um, we need to make sure that there's, the enough availability of easy to chew options. So these are just softer options uh, on the menu uh, for people with any uh, chewing difficulties or fatigue. Um, And unless you're a fresh cook kitchen, so making um, food fresh on the day, you're often limited by what your suppliers have to offer. Um, So that's a big consideration. Um, If your supplier only offers seven vegan dishes, then you can only put seven vegan dishes on your menu. Um, So the next aim I mentioned there was making sure it was enticing and tasty so that patients actually want to eat it. Uh, So we need to consider the variety uh, to prevent menu fatigue. uh, And we want to avoid putting too many similar dishes in a row to keep it interesting for patients. Um, And it's really important to think through the lens of a person who's unwell. So when we're well, we might feel like having a green smoothie or a salmon poke bowl for lunch. Um, But when we're unwell, uh, we want something more familiar, maybe plainer and comforting. So even something like cheese on toast and a good cup of tea is something we might feel like more when we're when we're not feeling very well. Um, and we need to make sure, obviously, it tastes good. <laughs> so again, those tasting sessions are a really important part of the job. Um, and it also needs to look good. So uh, we need to make sure that whatever options we put on the menu, they're going to regenerate well at a hospital ward level. Um, So in the ovens that we use in the hospitals. So lots of people, they want fish and chips on the hospital menu, but the truth is you're never going to get the same loved version of fish and chips um, in a hospital oven that you're going to get from your local chippy with their deep fryer. So you have to consider that as well. Um, The third aim there was to stick within budget. Uh, So we need to consider how much we have to spend per meal uh, and how much the product's going to cost from our suppliers. Uh, We also need to factor in any operational costs, so like labour and packaging. Uh, It may be cheaper to buy in bulk like big bags of raw carrots, but um, how much will it cost for a staff member to wash, to chop, um, you know, package up those carrots for them to go up to the ward. So we need to factor those costs in as well. And the final one there was to make, um, more sustainable food choices. So we need to consider how to effectively minimize the amount of food waste, uh, and packaging up on the wards. We need to reduce products with a high carbon cost. And um, so like decreasing the number of beef dishes on the menu and also using more vegetarian and vegan options. Um, so yeah, they're the kind of main considerations I'd have to make when developing a menu. But if we're looking purely at uh, the special diets, so any um, diets that don't fall within that standard menu, it is it is quite a challenge to create menus that are going to meet the nutritional needs of all the different kinds of patients. Um, so this is actually where the BDA Digest comes in handy because it gives you an overview of all the common therapeutic diets Um, And it defines the different nutrition targets for both nutritionally well and nutritionally vulnerable patients that we want to aim for. Um, So I would generally look at these diets and see how many of them we can meet with our standard menu. And then for any special diets that we couldn't meet with our standard menu, we'd create separate individual a la carte menus for these special therapeutic diets And when I'm developing those, my advice is to always put yourself in those patients' shoes. So if I'm a patient with celiac disease, um, what can I pick from the gluten-free menu or what can I pick from the standard menu? Um, What could I have for breakfast? What could I pick from the snack trolley? Um, And I wanna make sure that when I'm looking at each of these special dietary requirements that there's enough variety um, so that there's a greater chance of those patients finding something they actually want to eat. and that will also meet the nutrition needs of course.
0: That's really interesting and also really fascinating to hear that focus on sustainability which I think is on everybody's minds at the moment. Um, can you just explain to us a bit more about how hospitals are transitioning towards providing more sustainable hospital food?
1: Yeah sure, so I, I, yeah, I would definitely say it is something that has come um, more into focus of late. So. Uh, definitely, since since I've started in food service, I've only seen it increasing in, um, in focus. Uh, so uh, some people may have heard of the um, Greener NHS campaign, um, which is working towards a net zero NHS by 2045. So there's definitely a real drive from the NHS to um, have more sustainable practices and source more sustainable food options. Um, and that's also reflected in the companies that work with the NHS. So um, the company I work for, ISS, we've got our own um, targets as well. So we've we've announced our campaign to have a net zero company by 2030. Um, so before the NHS one, uh, and. Sustainability does play a big role also when we're deciding which suppliers to use. So it's our responsibility to make sure that whoever we're picking to do business with, um, that they're they're actually sourcing sustainable products um, and sourcing local produce where possible uh, and also working as a company to reduce their own carbon footprint. Uh, At the moment, uh, in terms of what we're doing right now, um, there's a big focus on any quick wins we can identify to help reduce food waste, um, because that's that's a really big issue at the moment. Um, and also the use of single use plastics. So reducing how, how many um, disposables are used up on the wards, single use plastic um, knives and forks. Um, and we're also looking at methods. That we can use to measure success. Um, So thinking about how we actually measure food waste effectively day to day, because we really need that baseline level of data so that whatever improvements we put in, we can show that it has actually made a difference um, and isn't just, you know, like a tick box for sustainability.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it's something more and more dietitians are thinking about in their practice as well and and the general public as well when they're when they're consuming and purchasing foods. So that's really good to hear. Um, Just going back to the menus that you mentioned earlier, generally how often do you review hospital menus? Are they on a cycle? Um, For example, if a patient's admitted to hospital for several months, are they likely to be eating the same sorts of foods, you know, day in day out, or do you change that menu frequently? Yeah. So that, that will definitely depend on the, The
1: trust, like so, the particular NHS trust, but also the size of the hospital and the type of patients that they have. So, um, if, for example, it's a mental health hospital where you've got patients who are there for a lot longer. Um, you would, they would generally have say like a four week cycle menu. So you'd have something different on every day for four weeks and then it would repeat after the four weeks. Whereas more of your acute hospitals where you know the, the average day of patients is say three days, that would be a lot shorter cycle menu. So maybe a one week cycle menu um, or even an a la carte menu where they can just have lots of variety, but the menu doesn't change itself. So there's a lot of flexibility there. Um, if the trust uh, has a contract with a a private company like ISS, um, they would, they would, um, they would set out a contract um, and say as part of that contract, we want the menu changed. You know, they would set out, this is the cycle of the menu that we want. Um, and they would also outline how, frequently that menu is reviewed and updated. So, for example, if they say we want a two-week cycle menu um, and we want that updated twice a year, so we want a spring-summer menu and an autumn-winter menu, that, that's quite standard for an NHS trust. Um, obviously, if there's any issues with some of the smaller menus that come up between these review periods, then you can review single menus individually um, as those issues come up.
0: Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And do you ever have to create really bespoke menus? For example, if you have a patient that comes in with such complex needs that none of the menus suit their requirements, does that ever happen? Or is that generally mitigated with all the various specialist menus that you have in place? Yeah, I would say majority are
1: um, covered by all the different special menus, but that there are a couple of instances where you might get a patient with, say, multiple allergies and also a um, a medical condition on top of that. So say like a renal patient or a, um, a patient that needs a gluten-free diet, but then they also have multiple allergies. Um, so we would still use all the same, um, food options that we have available to everyone, but it's just about weeding through those dish options and pulling out the ones that are going to be suitable for that patient and then providing that information to the nutrition assistant or the, the nurse so that they have it at hand. Because I think it can be a bit intimidating sometimes when you've got multiple allergies and like oh, they get nervous about what they can give the patient. So it's just giving them that confidence to be like, the information's there. These options are suitable for that patient um, and just having them in one place that, that they can kind of refer back to to give that confidence um, to the, to the catering staff.
0: Yeah. And, and on that note about, you know, meeting patients' uh, unique and individual requirements, how do you go about creating menus that are suitable for different specific cultural or religious dietary needs? Can you talk us through that process in a bit more detail? Yeah, definitely. Um, so
1: the I, I, I guess to to start off, you know, you've first got to identify which, which – um, cultural or religious meals um, or menu, sorry, you've got to, you've got to cater to. And, and that's going to be reliant on the demographics of the area that you're in. Um, so what, what, trust, what catchment area that trust is in. Um, but if we're going to look at common ones, uh, most hospitals will cater for halal, kosher, Asian vegetarian. Um, so that would cater to Hinduism or Sikhism. Uh, and also African-Caribbean-style meals um, are really popular as well. Um, So we actually source these specialist options from uh, separate suppliers to make sure that they're authentic and also meet any um, accreditation requirements as well. Um, And the way that these menus are designed is also dependent on the demographics of that area. So it's really important that NHS trusts have a good understanding Um, of this and communicate that as well to their food service teams. Uh, So for example, a trust in say North London, they might have a need for a larger kosher menu compared to a um, a trust in Southeast London. So one hospital I worked in, they have um, a higher Jewish patient population um, and they'd received complaints about their lack of kosher meal variety. So the way I went about it was to review the current menu Um, and I added in extra, um, kosher options from our certified, um, kosher meal supplier. Um, and when I was doing that review, I did notice that an area we were lacking was probably suitable kosher breakfast and snack items. So it's like looking at the food service as a whole, um, and not just individual meals. So I was able to source some more cost-effective, um, kosher appropriate options for snacks and breakfasts. Um, And I also uh, saw some special uh, special Shabbos meals for Friday nights and Saturday lunches. So these meals are a big part of Jewish culture um, and it can really help improve the nutritional intake of these patients. But yeah, again, when you're developing any special diet menu, whether that's cultural, religious, therapeutic, um, they're all analyzed in exactly the same way and they all have to meet the the same um, standards as the the rest of the menus
0: yeah so many different things for you to consider when putting the menus together but ultimately as you mentioned earlier cost is a big um, factor in those decisions that you're making so I'm wondering on average how much do hospitals tend to spend per meal per patient per day Do do you have any figures to hand that you can share with us yeah so um
1: Obviously, if you're you're working with private patients, your budget's gonna be a lot bigger (laughs) and you can choose more premium products and ingredients. Um, But if you're working in public health, so the NHS, um, the budget will vary slightly depending on the individual NHS trust because they all set their own budgets. Um, But in the recent hospital food review, uh, they estimated the average cost of an NHS patient meal is around £4.56, that's also including labour and overhead costs as well. So if you're looking at just the pure cost of food alone, um, from my experience, your average budget is between five to six pounds a day per patient. So that covers everything from breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks. So you've got to cover all of that um, between five to
0: six pounds. So not a huge amount to work with. How do you balance making sure that the meals are palatable, enticing, tasty, but also giving the patients the nutrition that they need and ultimately being eaten without much food waste? I mean, that's probably the million dollar question, but how do you go about balancing that? Uh, definitely. So, um, I
1: have seen more hospital trusts move towards um, a frozen meal solution. So this is where the meals are directly supplied from suppliers um, and they're stored in hospital freeze, freezers and regenerated at, at ward level just before service. So apart from being beneficial on a food safety level, um, it means you can have much tighter control for your your meal numbers, and you can reduce the amount of wastage you end up with, um, which is really significant for your larger hospitals with over a thousand beds. Um, You can also then offer patients more options um, because you can store those in the freezers um, and you take their meal orders a lot closer to the, the actual meal times. So then they're more likely to choose something that they'd like to eat that day. Um, Another way I think that hospitals are usually able to keep their costs down is uh, they do source their meals and um, products in bulk. Um, So they'd normally have one supplier that specializes in hospital food. And they'd also set up a contract with large wholesaler um, for other products to use that bulk buying power. So things like breakfast cereal, tea, coffee, frozen vegetables, tin tuna, Custard, gravy powder, all of that can be bought in bulk, um, so you can get um, so you can get the, the the best price for those kind of products. And I would say, finally, hospitals do tend to limit expensive brands or products. Um, they'll usually only, you know, we will try and use more like nourishing products and, um, products that patients are going to be more familiar with. Um, but we might need to say, limit these to patients with a clinic, um, with an identified clinical need um, for those products or to make sure that any patients who are at risk of malnutrition have X, ex- um, have access to those extra snacks and things.
0: Yeah. So, so it's, it's a real balancing act by the sounds of things, lots of different factors to consider. Um, and in terms of the main challenges that you face in your role, I'm imagining that's probably one of them, but are there any other challenges that you tend to encounter day to day? Yeah, definitely. So uh, definitely
1: costs would probably want to be one of the biggest ones. Um, yeah. As I said, I, I would love to give every single patient, you know, Greek yogurt, protein bars, hummus, <laughs> um, but these are all a bit too expensive for the budget and You know, it's not impossible to um, include these items on your menus. Also, the more premium products from suppliers, so things like fillets of salmon and fancier desserts, it's not impossible to use these. Um, You just, as you said, it's all about a balance. You might have to balance these out with cheaper options on your menu so that you're still able to hit your budget. Um, But in terms of other challenges, um, I think another challenge is... Sometimes a lack of understanding of the operational pressures of running a a food service in a large hospital setting. So there's so many different points of failure uh, in hospital food service that you need to be on top of to make sure your patients can access food that's safe, appropriate uh, for them. So everything from getting the right type and amount of stock from our suppliers um, to taking patient meal orders and getting the right meals up to the wards. So some of the wards in hospitals... I've worked in, um, they have almost 40 beds. So you can get a sense of how much time it would take a ward host to take 40 meal orders, let alone everything else they need to do on top of that. Um, And I find that once someone finds out what's involved um, in a food service, they're much more understanding when you aren't able to provide say specific brands or special made made to order meals uh, for particular patients. Um, But in terms of challenges, I think, a final one would be that many of our frontline catering team um, they don't have a medical or nutrition background, um, so this can be challenging in a hospital ward environment. So they've got they've got really busy schedules, um, and they can only really do their job effectively if they're supported by the clinical team on their ward. So it makes it makes a, such a difference if uh, I would say if. Um, it makes a difference to patient care um, when ward hosts or nutrition assistants, nursing staff, dietitians, when they're all working together as a team. Um, I, I think that clinical staff can sometimes not recognise that catering staff don't have the same knowledge base as them, so it can be a bit intimidating for ward hosts to approach, approach a nurse or a doctor and ask about a patient. Um, I've always seen the best outcomes when the clinical ward staff support the catering staff and vice versa as well.
0: Yeah, that does bring to mind, I think a recent headline that I'm sure you saw in the news, I think it was about a celiac patient being given um, an incorrect menu for their dietary requirements. Did you, are you familiar with that story? I didn't see
1: the particular story, but um, yeah, that kind of thing does come up um, from time to time in hospitals I've worked in before. And I think from my experience, it's quite easy to, you know, once it involves food to blame the, the person involved with catering so that, that frontline um, uh, ward host or nutrition assistant um, but it does. it's a real team effort. So because they don't have access to the medical records, they can't look up what the patient needs, you know, on the computer, on the ward, um, they are really reliant on the nursing staff or, or any of the clinical team to hand that information over to them. Um, and it's up to us as well to make sure there's systems in place that that handover can occur as well. Um, because if they don't receive the information then they're not going to know that that patient has a special dietary requirement. So that clear communication and teamwork um, between clinical staff and catering staff is really, really important
0: and Mm, a big challenge. mm. Yeah, absolutely. And just as we come towards the end of your episode, um, you're a committee member of the BDA Food Service Specialist Group. Can you tell us a bit more about the group and what the main aims are?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, our our main aim is really to develop and promote uh, the specialism of food services within dietetics. So the committee is actually currently working on a course in food service dietetics uh, for new grads or experienced dietitians who want to learn more about this area. Um, We want to provide dietitians with useful guidance, tools, communication resources, so things like the BDA Digest. um, That's uh, one of the big pieces of work from the committee um, and they're really driving forward those, I guess, standard, standardized approach to hospital food service. Um, And we also have smaller resources like our um, food allergy toolkit as well, which is really useful. Um, We really want to be the, that voice of the dietetic profession um, in the, public food service sphere. So especially when it comes to uh, advising government or other agencies and professional bodies. So we've been involved in the recent hospital food review. Um, We've been involved in government buying standards. um, And also one of our members has been involved in the the national food strategy as well. And uh, because finally, we want to really drive innovation in food service dietetics by advancing the science and practice in this area. So there is a lack of really robust research in hospital food service. Uh, And as a committee, we're really hoping to drive forward new research so we can determine how we can better meet the nutritional needs of patients in hospitals, um, alongside all those challenges we face on a day-to-day basis.
0: And I understand through word of mouth that as part of the committee, you uh, and yourself, you're part of the working group responsible for the third edition of the BDA Nutrition and Hydration Digest. Can you give us any little teasers as to what we can expect to see from that updated version?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, this is yeah, this has been a couple of years in the making, the the third edition, um, and we're hoping to launch it in November this year. So we're very excited about that. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with the BDA digest it is essentially the food service dietitian's Bible um, and you can access it on the the food service specialist um, groups uh, page on the BDA website um, so some of the big the bigger updates I would say for this edition is um, and this ties in nicely with what we've been talking about we will have a new chapter on sustainability so that's a new edition for the the third third edition um, and we're also going to be including more information on that expanded role of the food service dietitian um, to include work with uh, procurement teams and also with um, staff health and well-being uh, and this is going to be i think even more important in the next couple of years um, because as we talked about with the the hospital food review um, one of the key recommendations that's going to be coming out um, the hospital food standards that have come off the back of that review um, is that every nhs trust has a named food service dietitian um so i'm hoping we're going to see a lot more jobs advertised for food service dietitians um so the digest really wants to support that by um we're going to include like a a standard job spec for a a food service dietitian so trusts can just pick that up um, and advertise those posts which is really exciting um There'll also be updates to nutritional standards to reflect the latest guidance and evidence. So we're looking at what we have Uh, increase the protein targets for meals uh, and also there'll be a new optional higher protein code that you can use on menus to highlight higher protein options and that will be separate from higher energy options because there was a lot of feedback that, you know, sometimes patients, they have these higher protein needs but not necessarily um, higher energy needs as well. Um, So that code and nutrition criteria will be hopefully useful for any particular hospitals that, that have that need and that special um, patient group. Uh, and lastly, I would say overall, we've really tried to improve the layout of the document. It is quite a hefty document, um, and we tried to break up any large chunks of text. We've got a lot more practical examples, um, lots more summary tables, and we're even going to put it into an online version in addition to the, the standard PDF um, version. So hopefully, it'll be a lot easier for everyone to use
0: lots of changes and watch this space. Yes, (laughs) Brilliant. And finally, Elise, if we've got dietitians or students listening who are interested in learning more or potentially even moving into a food service role, where would you direct them to? If if they want
1: more information, um, I would Um, definitely recommend visiting the food services specialist groups page on the BDA website. Um, They can find the digest there as well, which has a lot of helpful information. Um, And I'd also advocate for being a member of the food service specialist group because it is a great way to get involved uh, with the food service speciality. So we've got webinars, study days, um, and they focus on topics like um, how to complete a menu assessment. So they're really, really practical. Uh, And if you're a student member of the BDA, you can actually join two specialist groups for free. So I definitely recommend doing that. And even if you aren't a student, the FSSG membership's great value, it's it's only 20 pounds a year. So that way you can access all of our events, post questions on our discussion board, and you'll get sent our monthly newsletter that has important updates like changes in government policy as well. Um, And as you can tell, I I, I love chatting about food service. So um, I welcome anyone to get in touch with me. Um, They can find my contact details on my website, which is thefoodservicedietitian.com.
0: Brilliant. And we've linked your website in the show notes so people can um, check out your website via there. And that's all that we have time for today. So thank you so much, Elise, for joining us and sharing your valuable experience and knowledge with us today it's a real pleasure to have had you with us so thank you it's been great thank you so much for having me and a huge thank you to new ultra for making this podcast possible if you do enjoy listening to the dietitian cafe please don't forget to subscribe or leave a review or five-star rating it really does help us to reach even more healthcare professionals you can also follow New Ultra on social media at New Ultra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out soon.